Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 10. As you're finding your place there, I want to welcome all those joining us via our live stream this morning. And so all of our online watchers, we've got some folks, I believe, in Indiana. We've got some folks in Alabama. Isn't that good? We've got some good southern folks joining us this morning. Um, we got folks in California. Uh, we were looking this week at some of the people. We don't know. It is kind of scary how much information you can get. Uh, but we can find out general areas where people are logging in and watching from. And it's really fun. Not just the United States, but globally, we got some folks joining with us. So all those watching online, Reach Church DeSoto, the venue down the hall, we're grateful you're here with us this morning. I also want to invite Joel Johnson to come and join me up here this morning. Um, Henry Blackaby, uh, if you've been through his study, Experiencing God, wonderful study. Uh, but he has something that, that just, just stuck with me for a long time, that our job is to find out where God is working and join him. And, uh, you know, when I came here, I think it's been about four or five years ago, uh, I got to meet Hunter Jewett. I think he was my first interaction with uh, an organization called Student Mobilization. And more and more, I interacted with him, and then I found somebody else, and then I ran into another person, and it just was everywhere I turned, I found these young men who had been discipled and led to faith in Christ during their college years through a ministry called Student Mobilization. And the more we found out about that, the more we saw God was working. I say it this way today. When I talk to people, I say to them, if you want to see an organization, I don't know of any organization, parachurch ministry, where God is moving more than through student mobilization. Mm -hmm. And it has been a great joy, great pleasure for us to partner with them, to support um, some of them on college campuses, some of them as they've gone on mission trips and now supporting a new work at at Kansas State, and even Penn State, but I don't want to steal too much of your thunder. Joel, you tell them a little bit about student mobilization, how God's working through that ministry. Yeah, well, thank you, Pastor Chad, and, and at Lenexa Baptist Church, good morning. It's a, it's a privilege to be with you all uh, this morning and to kind of be a part of your missions moment. Uh, as Pastor Chad mentioned, uh, my name is Joel Johnson. I've got a picture of my family, my wife, and, and my two kids. My daughters are with me uh, this morning while my wife is at a conference. And, and I just want to express, one, our gratitude to you all as a church for your all's partnership uh, in the cause of Christ uh, as God is working not just here locally in your community, but also through different university campuses. As Pastor Chad mentioned, I work with a ministry called Student Mobilization, and I've worked on different college campuses now for the last 23 years. And you all as a church have generously and sacrificially uh, had a heart to partner with what God is doing on some of these respective campuses. And I just want to give you all a little bit of an update and just express my gratitude and my appreciation to you all on behalf of the ministry. Uh, I first want to introduce you to some of our teams real quick that just kind of put some names with faces and let you know kind of where we're ministering, particularly here in the Midwest, even though we have ministries uh, throughout the country. Uh, but first of all, I have a picture of our team at the University of Kansas. So any Jayhawks? here in the room. And so here's our team that's ministering there uh, at KU. In addition to them, we also have a team ministering at the University of Missouri. And so here's a picture of that team. If there's any Tigers here in the room as well. Okay, a few of you all, a few of you all represented there. Uh, in addition uh, to these two campuses, uh, Northwest Missouri State up in Maryville, just north up the road. And we have a team ministering there as well. We also do, as Pastor Chad mentioned, have a team at Penn State. Now, you might think Penn State's not really in the Midwest, but we're actually serving this team uh, there out in Pennsylvania. Uh, we also have a team at the University of Nebraska. 
and uh, ministering to students up there. And then we also have a team at Kansas State University in Manhattan where our family resides and have lived for 23 years. And so these are some of our university teams here in the Midwest. We also have a couple, Bob and Alyssa Harrison, who actually live here in Kansas City, helping some of our graduates from all these different ministries who are coming to Kansas City and beginning their careers, starting their families, really getting integrated into different local churches here in the community. And so Bob and Alyssa are helping them make that transition from the collegiate you know, season of life into this new chapter. You know, and to plugging in, again, with great communities of faith like you all, you know, to continue this great work that God's doing in them and through their lives as well. Uh, we not only have a heart for the campuses, but we really have a heart for the world. And we really trust that what God's doing through these university campuses will have ripple effects into the world. And it's been really special that even over the last 10 years, we've seen over 160 different graduates that God's laid on their heart to go into some realm of missions, and the graphic that you can see um, on the screens right now shows some of the different countries where many of those graduates have gone over the years. And you can see some of these places are some of the most unreached places uh, in the world, places where the gospel, you know, is very rare and where churches are altogether void or at least very sparse. And, and we trust that God is not just creating a fellowship, if you will, on the campus, but that he's raising up leaders, men and women who have a heart wherever they go, wherever God's gonna lead them to walk faithfully with him and to represent him as his ambassadors and living out the great commission. Um, some of this, um, you know, you all even have some personal connections with here. Your all's own Pastor Nick uh, was a part of one of these teams in South Asia for a number of years before he came and joined you all here and is serving uh, in your ministry here. In addition uh, to Pastor Nick, um, I just got back this last week from Cebu City, Philippines, where one of your own, Maddie Brower, is actually a part of that team. So this was actually last Sunday. Uh, I was there in the Philippines, and this is actually a picture after our worship service. Our church that we're a part of and partner with there in the Philippines had just come back together after two years. This is only the third service that they've had in over two years. And so, Maddie, you can see there's in the front row, I had some of our U.S. staff join me on this trip. And this is a picture of us with our pastor, as well as with about 10 of the students uh, at universities there who have come to know the Lord and who are learning to walk with him and to grow in Christ through our ministry there. And your all's partnership and investment in Maddie is allowing the gospel to go forth, even among those universities there as well. But the last thing I want to highlight briefly uh, this morning is really uh, our initiative among multicultural students on our different campuses. We've always had a desire for the cultural diversity that's represented on our campuses to also be represented within our ministries. And this is an initiative that you all as a church, again, have sacrificially and generously said, hey, we want to be a part of. We want to be a part of seeing the gospel go to all of the student body on these different campuses and to really see God's grace transform hearts and lives among the cultural diversity that's represented on these different campuses. We have several of our staff. This is kind of the next picture here. Blake, who's second from the left, is actually our multicultural director. And he, along with uh, Daryl, his wife Millie, Haley, and Austin, are really leading the charge and really helping to take the gospel into the diverse cultures represented on all of our campuses. And again, you all are helping make this possible, okay? You all are ministering on these campuses as you partner with some of our staff, as you partner with some of these initiatives. And, and I just wanna say on behalf of our ministries just how grateful we are for you all. 
This has always been kind of a church home for me over the last handful of years. When, when we come to town, we love being a part of what God is doing here. We love being a part of this community, of the fellowship, of the culture that you all are creating. And we love that you all not only have a heart to see the gospel go forth here in Kansas City and seeing disciples made, but that you have a heart to partner with others who are doing that. In this case, on college campuses, but ultimately into all the nations. And so thank you all. Thank you for your hearts for the Lord. Thank you for believing in, in what we're doing. You know, our, our mission statement is to build laborers for Christ from the college campuses of the world. And our desire for that is we see the vacuum, we see the void of spiritual leaders in our world. And we wanna see God raise up those kind of men and those kind of women. And I know that's on your all's heart as well. So thanks for the privilege of sharing uh, with you all, giving you a little bit of an update this morning and just expressing my appreciation to you all. And now, Pastor Chad, yeah. if I can pray for yes, you as you open up God's yeah, word and, and speak to us from it. And so, Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for this body of believers, these brothers and sisters, God, that we get to come together with, Lord, that we get to worship with. God, you've called us to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but, Lord, to do this all the more as we see the day approaching. And God, I thank you that we can gather here. We can gather freely, Lord, that we can hear your word, Lord, communicated, taught, Lord, explained, and, uh, and Lord, called to apply to our lives. And Lord, I pray that even this morning that you would speak through Pastor Chad, Lord, as he opens up the book of Revelation and shows us the beauty of your plans to come. Lord, even this Palm Sunday, Lord, as we look back, you know, to the work on the cross, Lord, and as we look forward, God, to the culmination in your second coming. God, we pray uh, that you would teach us through your word. God, we know that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, Lord, and it's able to penetrate. And Lord, I pray that would happen in each of our hearts this morning, that as Pastor Chad preaches to us, God, that you would allow your word to penetrate. God, you would create change. God, you would graciously draw us to yourself Lord, give us a deep love for you, a deep commitment to walking in your ways, Lord, and to living lives that bring you honor. Lord, help us to be a people that continue the great work, Lord, that you have begun in this world, Lord, as we seek to make disciples of all the nations. Mm. And Lord, we come before you eager to learn, eager to be taught this morning. And so, Father, thank you for your son. Lord, thank you for the redemption that we have get to taste because of the cross mm. and because of the resurrection. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to walk faithfully with you for a lifetime. Lord, be with us this morning as your word is open. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, amen. Pastor Chad. Joel, thank you so much, yes, brother. Sir. Thank you. It's, uh, it's such a joy to have Joel here. And it's fun because you meet these students who... Um, They've come to faith in Christ, and they know their spiritual lineage. That's what's fun. You'll talk to them, and they'll say, well, I was led to faith in Christ by this guy who was led to faith in this guy, and this guy was led to faith in Christ because of Joel. And it's just fun to see how God is working through this ministry. They are, um, I get to be around some of the, the guys that came through Stumo that are here in Kansas City, and they're always such a challenge to me. When they came to faith in Christ, a lot of these guys, and I'm assuming the women did too, but the guys, um, they would then find strategic places on campus to go in order to be a light for Christ. Isn't that awesome? 
they would say, we're not just gonna hole up in a holy huddle and wait for Christ's return. They had a missional mindset uh, to go into the difficult places in fraternities and uh, other organizations on campus with the sole purpose of making disciples. Uh, Joe, we're grateful for your faithfulness and thank you for being here this morning. Revelation 19. In the Old Testament, God made covenant promises to Israel. Uh, he entered into not a contract with Israel. He entered into a covenant that was based upon his covenantal faithfulness. In the Hebrew, it's, it's kesed, it's hesed. It's loving, loyal kindness towards this nation. He made a promise to give them land, the land of Palestine. He pl- promised a seed that through them, the Messiah would come, that our Messiah would be a Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. He promised that they would be a blessing. They would be a great nation, a promise. He reaffirmed to them in Jeremiah 31. And in the Old Testament, God dealt primarily with this nation, the nation of Israel. They were to be evangelistic. They were to be a light to the world of what it looks like to submit yourself to to God and to his word and know his blessings and his salvation through faith in the one who would come. But we know as we study the Old Testament, Israel rejected God. And ultimately, they rejected Christ. And God has now set aside Israel, and he's turned his attention to the nations. He's given us, uh, the New Testament would say goyim, the nations, the Gentiles, those of us who can't trace our lineage back to Abraham, he's taken Israel's Redeemer and given him to us. And now the Messiah goes to you and me. And and how well have we done? And quite frankly, we've not done very well. Uh, We've rejected God's commands concerning family and morals and sexuality. We've gotten off target in a pretty profound way. I don't know about you, but more and more as I try to watch less and less of the news. But you watch the news and you see what's going on and you see a steady decline, don't you? Does the Bible predict this? Yeah, it does. The Bible has a pretty pessimistic view of this world and where it's headed. And the Bible talks about that turning away from God as the apostasy. In fact, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, don't let anyone deceive you for it will not come. He's talking about the rapture of the church. The Thessalonians were confused about whether or not they had missed the rapture. And he said, don't let anyone deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Paul told them that before the rapture, before the great tribulation, there's going to be a worldwide turning away from God and his son, Jesus Christ. It also tells us that there will be this man of lawlessness, this, uh, the, the man identified in the Old Testament in the Revelation as the beast, the Antichrist, will arise. But what is God doing right now? God is building his church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. It's a day of grace and the gospel goes forth into a lost world and we as the nations, our eyes are open to the depth of our sin, the beauty of our Savior Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God draws us to himself. Uh, I picture it kind of like the days of Noah. I just imagine those animals just uh, irresistibly drawn by God's grace into that ark of God's salvation and that's you and I. We're We're drawn by God in the midst of our lives into the ark of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. God is building as a church, and we're a picture to the world of what the world should look like when a people submit themselves to Christ the King. We give the world a glimpse of the coming kingdom that we're going to study in a few weeks, and we also give the world a glimpse 
of heaven. Isn't that good? That, um, man, as I was singing, we're going to get a chance to sing at the end. But I love this in the church. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. The beauty of the church is all the nations coming together, meaning Jayhawk (laughs) and Wildcat (laughs) and Tiger. We all gather together, united under one king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, King Jesus. We're in a day of grace. We, We don't know how long this day of grace will last. It's a stay of execution before the the judgment of God. But the next event that we're waiting for is what? It's the rapture of the church. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. We call that the rapture. Paul said it this way, we will not all sleep, meaning we're not all going to die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And once the church has been raptured and the restrainer is removed, the earth will enter into a time of tribulation and God will pour out his judgment on a world that's rejected him, a world that has mocked him, mocked his word, mocked his son, and persecuted his people. And in the tribulation, God will renew his promises and his purposes with Israel because they are his people and he has made promises to them that he will fulfill. And the tribulation will be incredibly severe as we've studied as the Seals are broken and judgment goes forth as the trumpets are sounded and judgment goes forth and as the bowls of God's severe judgment is poured off, the nation of Israel will be brought to its knees and just as Christ said, they will look upon him whom they had pierced. They will turn to Christ with the spirit of Jacob and say that we will not let you go until you bless us. The tribulation is described as birth pains. Because as God moves forward with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, it just gets more intense and more intense and more intense and more intense until life springs forth and Christ returns. We come to the end of the tribulation as we've been studying in Revelation. We are but a breath away from the return of Christ. So let's study this chapter. Look in verse 1. Revelation 19, verse one, after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of the bondservants on her. This is heaven's response to God's judgment of Babylon that we studied in chapters 17 and 18, the fall of all false religion, the fall of all false government. And it's apparent here as we see heaven rejoicing that heaven is not embarrassed by the severe nature of God's judgment. Heaven does not apologize for the fierceness of God's wrath. No, heaven rejoices. Earth is mourning. Heaven is rejoicing. It's a hallelujah chorus. It's a The first time that the word hallelujah occurs in the New Testament. It's the only Hebrew word in the New Testament. We have a smattering of Aramaic, but only one Hebrew word, the word hallelujah. 
what God had promised in the garden, that he would send somebody. After the fall of man, that he would send someone, that he, one man, will crush your head, but he'll be wounded on the heel. That there was a man who was coming who would not just redeem and save his people, but there was coming a man who would defeat Satan and put down God's enemies. So heaven rejoices in God's salvation demonstrated in his judgment that he has defeated Babylon. He's put down his enemies. He has avenged the blood of the saints. And then look at verse three. And a second time they said, hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. The smoke rising up forever is a picture that his judgment is eternal. False government and false religion will not make a comeback. They will not rise again. Salvation is God's rescuing his people from sin. When we come to faith in Christ, we're rescued from the penalty of sin. Isn't this good news? The Bible calls it justification. Judiciously, we are made right in the sight of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And his blood covers our sins. And now God looks down upon us, not through the lens of our sin, but he looks at us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and he calls us sons and daughters. Isn't that good news? The way I like to say it, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God, that through faith in Christ, we give God our sin and he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. That's good news. He freed us from the penalty of sin. He frees us from the power of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. We now have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God, to put to death the deeds in the body through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're no longer a slave to sin, but we are sons and daughters of the King. We cry out, Abba, Father. We now, with hearts of gratitude and worship, lovingly respond and say no to sin and yes to God. Freed from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin. But one day, this is really good news, we'll be freed from the presence of sin. And this is the beginning of what we see here in Revelation 19. Christ defeats the enemies of God and his people. He's cast them down, never to rise again. False religion will not come back. It's not gonna have a second act. Man that has rebelled and sinned since the Garden of Eden, man that has commandeered religion and government at the Tower of Babel is fully and finally finished. And God has vindicated his name. God has vindicated his character. God sells to us, to you and I as believers. He says, leave room for the wrath of God because it's written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When somebody sins against us, when somebody hurts us, you and I are to extend forgiveness. And we leave room for the wrath of God. But here's the question. Will God be true to his words of judgment? Will he be as true to his words of judgment as he is to his words of promise? Will God vindicate his character? In other words, were God's warning words of judgment, were they just idle words? In this way, his judgment becomes absolutely necessary. Does evil triumph or is God ultimately in control? Who has the last word? That's the question at the heart of the universe. And what we find out here is that God has the final word. 
We see in verses four through six, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bond servants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. If you've been with us as we've studied through Revelation, you know that the 24 elders represent the church. The church now joins in this hallelujah chorus along with the four living creatures, part of the angelic realm, and they all sing hallelujah. It's a command performance of the angelic realm. All the heavenly hosts, myriads upon myriads, together with the church, crying out in a united voice that is so powerful. It's like the sound of rushing water and like peals of thunder. I read that I think, no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And they praise God because the question of the universe has been settled. Who's in control? Who gets the last word? It says here, the Lord our God. The almighty El Shaddai reigns. In one sense, listen, God has always reigned. His rule over creation has never been in doubt. But in another sense, the physical reign of Christ on earth has been corrupted by fallen man, usurped by Satan, the prince of the power of the air. But right here, the earth is a breath away from the institution of God's literal earthly kingdom. And look at verse seven, let us rejoice and be glad and Give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The time has come for Christ to marry his bride. In a, in a traditional Jewish marriage, the father chooses a bride for his son. He goes to a young man of his choosing and he tells that young man, uh, or that young woman, I should say. <laughs> well, I get this confused here. He goes to that young woman and tells her about all the glories of his son. Tells, him about, tells her about all the wealth of the son. And she has to say yes. There's no forcing this. She has to say yes. And then there would be the pledge or the seal, the betrothal period. It was as binding as marriage, an absolute commitment to one another, much like Mary with Joseph. And the bridegroom would then go away. And he would go away to prepare a place for them, to prepare a bridal chamber. And the bride waits. She makes herself ready, anticipating his coming to take her away. The bride doesn't know when the groom is coming. That time is set by the father. But she's waiting for him to come, anticipating his coming, always staying alert and making herself ready, keeping herself pure. And then he comes to take her away, a surprise coming, Oftentimes, it was the first time that the couple would see each other face to face. And they make their vows, they go into the bridal chamber, and then they emerge and everyone rejoices, and then they have a wedding feast. Does that picture sound familiar? That God has chosen us, we're the bride of Christ. God chose us before the foundation of the world to be his son's bride and we became a part of his bride, the church, when we trusted in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. God chose us and we said yes. And we were given the Holy Spirit as a pledge, as a seal of our salvation that Christ had saved us, 
and that Christ would come for us. Christ, the bridegroom, what has he done? He's gone away. And what is he doing? He's preparing a place for us. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place. If I go away to prepare a place, I'll come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And at the rapture of the church, Christ comes to snatch his bride away. And we are gone, we are with Christ for seven years, and then we, uh, we emerge for what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Look with me at verse eight, it says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That phrase, the righteous acts of the saints, it's literally righteousnesses, it's righteousness Plural. What are we talking about here? The plural to me indicates that this is not the imputed righteousness that we receive at the moment of salvation. So if it's not the imputed righteousness of Christ at the moment of salvation, what are we talking about here? Well, these are the righteous acts of the saints that have survived the Bema judgment of Christ and have become the basis of our rewards. You may ask, well, what's the Bema judgment of Christ? And Bema literally just means judgment. It's a reference to 2 Corinthians 5. That you and I, as believers in Christ, we will not be judged on the basis of our sin. Our sin has been covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But we will be judged. What will be judged? Our works will be judged. When we trust in Christ, the foundation of our life is Christ. And Christ assures us that we will go to heaven. But what we do after having given our life to Christ, how we build on the foundation of Christ, those works will be judged. Jot this verse down. Don't take my word for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." You and I, after the rapture, we are taken up to heaven and we will face the judgment seat of Christ. We will be judged for our works. They will be tested by fire. Of all the work that we have done in our life, was it done for our own glory, for our own ambition, or was it done for the glory of Christ? And the work that was done for our own ambition, the work that was done for our own glory, it will burn up like wood, hay, and straw. And that which we've done for the glory of Christ and the glory of God, it will pass through and on that basis we will receive a reward. And scripture indicates here that there are gonna be some folks who make it through. They're gonna get into heaven but they're gonna make it through smelling like smoke. Like a man escaping a burning house. He has his life but no possessions. So many Christians operate from an erroneous idea that the only thing that matters about heaven is whether you get there or not. But in reality, we will not all hold equal status in heaven. 
Some people are going to go into heaven empty-handed, while some will enter with great reward. Jot another verse down, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. Paul says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul says all, each one individually, their works are judged and rewarded for their deeds. I believe that those rewards will determine in some capacity our ability to enjoy eternity. Those rewards will determine what you do for the next billion years. And listen, don't get me wrong, I believe that just being in heaven will be far more glorious than we could possibly imagine. But I also know that Paul, after he came back from being caught up in heaven, his singular focus in life was to win the race and run as the one who wins. Paul's single-minded devotion was to live unto the glory of Christ. In other words, take take. Take the words of the guy who saw what was on the other side and came back and said, for me to live is Christ. And who also said all the things that were gained to me, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. He got a glimpse of the other side and he said, all this stuff here is rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ and living for him. We need to have a Bema seat mindset to live our lives for the glory of Christ, to build our life on the things that that last forever. You know what I've determined? There's only two things in this world that are eternal, the word of God and people. And you cannot go wrong investing your life on the basis of those two things. Determine in your heart to be a person who knows and lives God's word. Determine in your heart to be a Psalm 1 man or woman who delights themselves in the law of the Lord. And in his law they meditate day and night for they will become like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, he says. For they will be like chaff which the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Be a Psalm 1 man or woman and devote yourself to the word of God and living it, not just to the word of God, but devote yourself to the one thing Christ left us here to do. I don't care where you're at, what your vocation is, what your job is, what your situation in life. Every one of us have been given one simple command and mission, and that is to make disciples. I truly believe one day I'm going to stand before Christ. What all did you do? Yeah, I went to church a lot. I did all this over here. How about the one thing I actually told you to do? That's all great and well, but how many disciples, how many people love Jesus more because they knew you? How many people know my son Jesus and are following him and growing his word because you impacted their life? That was the job. I had a mentor who always kept this in front of me. He would say to me, Chad, you don't get any special status because you preach. At the end of the day, he would tell me, it doesn't matter one lick how many people come to hear you preach. 
What will truly matter is how well you loved your wife and your children and how many people loved Jesus more because you were in their life. Store up eternal treasure. We have insider knowledge, don't we? What is illegal in the stock market we're commanded to do? By Christ. We know the stock of this world will tank. And we know the things of eternity will last forever. Jesus, when he died on the cross, listen, he had almost zero earthly possessions. Roman soldiers rolled dice for all that he had and walked away with it in their pockets. He only took one thing with him to heaven. You remember he turned to the thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise. How many people will be with you and Christ forever and eternity because you were faithful to what God told you to do? Well, as I was thinking about this, I don't want to beat a dead horse. But you can't claim ignorance anymore, all right? You can't go to heaven and say, Jesus, I didn't know this was going to happen. Because it's not just these two passages. There's, I think, three or four parables where Jesus speaks to the, uh, the, the matter of eternal rewards. But I don't know about you, but most of the things that I get concerned about, they're not gonna matter in three weeks, much less three months or three years. I can guarantee you this, 10,000 years from now, you will not have regretted investing in the things of God and eternity in the souls of men and women. Devote your life to the things of God. Back to Revelation. Here, the, the fine linen represents Christ's recognition for the work we've done for him. It's acknowledgement of our activities done for the glory of Christ. Verse nine, then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. The marriage supper of the lamb. As I read that, I couldn't help but be reminded that Jesus on the night of his betrayal, he took the final uh, Passover meal with the disciples. Uh, what would be the the institution of the Lord's Supper, communion as we know it. A traditional Passover meal had four cups. If you read Luke's gospel, you'll see the mentioning of multiple cups. You'll say, what is that? It's because a traditional Passover meal had four cups. The first was the cup of sanctification. The second was the cup of deliverance. And then after those two cups, the father of the house would have taken the unleavened bread, the matzah bread, he would place it over his head, he'd have broke it and said, take, eat all who are hungry. It was known as the bread of affliction. It was a reminder of the affliction that God had poured out on the Egyptians as he freed his children from the slavery and bondage that they experienced in Egypt. And that's when Jesus took the bread and guess what he said? This is my body. From now on, every time we hold that piece of bread, we're reminded of the affliction that God poured out on who? On Christ. For our sins, so that you and I could be freed from our slavery and bondage to sin, so we could live under the glory of God. And then he would have taken the cup, and that third cup was the cup of redemption. It reminded the the Israelites of the blood of the unblemished lamb that was placed over the doorpost of their home, so that the angel of death would pass over them. And Jesus took that cup and he said, what? This is my blood. It's a reminder from now on, not of the blood of that that lamb that was slain in Egypt, but it's to remind you that I died for your sins and my blood was shed so that the angel of death through faith in me would pass over you and you would know my salvation and my freedom. And then 
would have come the fourth cup, the cup of celebration. And Jesus, in that last Passover meal, I love this, he leaves that cup out. In other words, Jesus leaves the meal intentionally unfinished. Why would he do such a thing? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 26, 29, he says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you know why he left it unfinished? He was waiting on the marriage supper of the Lamb. He was waiting on Revelation 19:9. And I have a feeling, a sneaky suspicion, when we get to that moment, Jesus Christ is going to say, Where were we? Oh, yeah. The fourth cup, the cup of celebration. And, folks, we are going to have a wedding party like you've never seen before. The marriage supper of the Lamb. But look at verse 10. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John does what I think any of us would have done. He's just so overwhelmed by the moment. He's just heard the united choir of heaven. So loud Sound like the rushing of water, peals of thunder. He gets a glimpse, a foretaste of that marriage supper. He doesn't know what else to do. He just falls down and the angel says, stop it. There's only one person we worship here. I think that moment that angel cringed. I mean, it hit him immediately because they probably thought of Satan who wanted everybody to worship him. And it's two words in the Greek, or a may. Don't do it. It's a reminder that Paul said in Ephesians 3, now to him who's able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ever think, ask, or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. Meaning Paul was telling the Ephesians in the church. Now out there a lot of people get glory. Politicians get glory Uh, coaches get glory, athletes get glory, but in here there's only one person who gets the glory and his name is Jesus. And so it will be one day when we get to heaven. Well, what do we do with this? Two reminders as we close this morning. Number one, you need to know this, what this teaches us very clearly, the Bible makes abundantly clear, is that one day judgment is coming. Scripture tells us that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man. And the question that you've got to ask yourself today is, are you ready? We're in a day of grace. We don't know when this day will end. People will say, well, you know what? I think I'll trust in Christ later on down the road. You don't know if God will be calling you later on down the road. You don't know if he won't return tomorrow. Trust him today. You know, it's Palm Sunday. Jesus, on that Palm Sunday, we sang about it, we read about it. He rode into Jerusalem on what? In, in, in fulfillment of prophecy, he rode into Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of a donkey, Imagine that, a humble animal. Jesus rides into 
Jerusalem in humility. They wanted him to conquer Rome. But Jesus didn't come to conquer Rome, did he? He came to conquer sin, Satan, and death through his death on the cross. So he rides in in humility is the sacrificial lamb like a sheep that's led to slaughter. He was silent. He submitted his life and he died on a cross for our sins. And now he has made a way of salvation. He cries out to a lost and dying world, trust in me. Know my salvation. Know my freedom. Know my forgiveness. Bend the knee to my lordship. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Meaning if you've been worn out by sin... Satan is a hard master. He will drive you to destruction and death. If you're weary and worn out by your sin, Jesus has come to me. He lays down his life. He offers salvation and forgiveness. But be warned. One day he's coming back. And when he comes back again, he will not come on the colt, the foal of a donkey. He will not come as the baby in the manger. He will not come as the lamb to die. He will come as the king of kings and the Lord of lords bearing judgment. And there'll be no more opportunity for salvation. We get a foretaste of it, just a little foretaste in 19. Look at verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one else knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and that's not his blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. You know who that is? That's us. I hope you don't mind riding horses. We're coming with him. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he'll rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the wine press uh, press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. I'm telling you today, trust in him. You will either bend the knee today and know his lordship and his salvation or you will bend the knee then and you will know his judgment is wrath. You really only have two options. You either trust in Christ to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf and you know his salvation, or one day you'll face the wrath of God on your own. But, but sin must be punished because God is a just God. Secondly, if you're here today and you know Christ, I just ask you very simply, where is your treasure? Are you storing up treasure here on earth where... Moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal? Or are you storing up treasure in heaven? Boy, we get so caught up in earthly things. The verse that I was memorizing this week is uh, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things choke the word and make it unfruitful. Do we live in a world that wants to pull us in a different direction? Let's live for Christ. Let's swim upstream. My professor in college used to say, or in seminary, uh, J.W. McGorman, any old dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a heap bit of wiggle in the tail 
to go against the current. Listen, every morning, let's get up and put on the armor of God and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's seek to go to war. Whatever workplace we find ourselves are in, our school, let's be disciple makers. Let's live differently. Let's shine like stars in the midst of a dark world and point people to the only hope of Christ. God is a great God, amen? Do we have a hymn? It's 12.02. You got nothing to go to, all right? Stick around for a moment. The people in the nursery get really mad when I say that. <laughs> Carl Boberg, an amazing story. Carl, Carl Boberg, a Swedish editor, Swedish writer, he was walking home one day and he heard a thunderstorm off in the distance. He heard the sound of rolling thunder. He ran home and he went into his little house. He opened the shutters and let the wind, the breeze blow in. And there he sat at his table and he said the word just came to him. He began to write a poem, uh, a Swedish poem in Swedish. It, the title is O Stor Gud. It means, O Lord, my God. Just a simple poem. In 1930, a man named Stuart Hind, an English missionary heard the Russian version of that poem that had now been put to song while he was serving as a missionary, guess where? In Ukraine. He took some liberty with that poem and translated it into English and gave it a new title, How Great Thou Art. The song remained in relative obscurity until... A guy named J. Edwin Orr, a British-American evangelist, traveled to India in 1954, and he heard an Indian choir sing the song. He was so impressed by it that he brought it back to America and had it performed at a conference for college students where he was speaking. In attendance that day just so happened to be a man named Tim Spencer. Anybody know Tim Spencer? The first service didn't, I tell you, I've done a poor job as a pastor, educate you on good gospel country music. Anybody know the Sons of the Pioneers? Tell me you know Roy Rogers, the good Oklahoman. Um, but Tim Spencer owned a music company known as, uh, named Mana Music. And he bought the rights to the song and started publishing it. And it in, eventually ended up in the hands of a man named George Beverly Shea. You know George Beverly, don't you? And he sang it in stadiums filled with thousands of people. But it still remained somewhat obscure. It really hadn't caught fire until another man grabbed hold of it. In the late 60s, a man decided to write a gospel album. He was criticized, mocked, told don't do it. He decided to do it anyway. And in 1967, he released that album. And it was sung on 267 radio stations across America. Guess what day it happened on? Palm Sunday, March 19th, 1967. A man named Elvis Presley <laughs> took that song, played it across all these stations, and it took fire. In fact, it won Elvis his first Grammy. 
It's gone multiple, multiple platinum by now. That song, How Great Thou Art. Isn't it amazing how God works? 140 years ago, just some Swedish guys walking along and put some pencil to paper and it becomes the second most well-known hymn in the Christian faith, second only to Amazing Grace. Y'all want to sing that this morning? Come on, let's stand together. Pastor Bill, we're just going to sing the first and the third verses. You know these words that I have on the screen. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And then that last verse, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Let's sing these words. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the you this morning. You are great and greatly to be praised. I thank you for this moment to lift our voices to you in humble adoration. 
so good together with your people and get a little taste of heaven. When every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne will sing glories to Christ. God, we thank you. Lord, I pray that our time here this morning that would, would encourage us to go out in the midst of a lost world and live for you. I pray in our lives they get a little glimpse of Jesus. God, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness would overflow from our life to everyone we touch so that they would see the goodness of the Savior who's changed us and saved us and secured us and one day is coming for us. God, I pray if anyone's here today watching online that don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would bend the knee to Christ. They'd turn to you in faith and repentance, know your salvation, your freedom, your forgiveness to know the goodness and the love of being called the child of God. As John said, what a great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called his children. God, I pray that you would draw them irresistibly by your grace this morning, your love to yourself. Lord, we love you, we praise you. Our God, how great thou art. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.